Ah, good morning. Christ is risen. Thank you. Thank you so much. I get older. I'm still not a functional adult. I don't know if I ever will be, but I'm married to such a high-functioning adult, it doesn't really matter. And I would have said that even if my in-laws weren't here today. So that gospel text, it makes me want to pray in two ways. One, it, wants me to, it makes me want to pray that some of you will, be, will use your dishonest wealth as a gift to me so that I will make room for you in heaven. That's one. And the other is that the people I owe money will have a shrewd, dishonest manager who works for them and approaches me. No, we're going to talk about the text in a moment. We're going to start with 1 Timothy chapter 2, but before we do that, let's, let's pray. Lord, thank you for the ways in which you open up space for us day after day, and especially on the Lord's Day, and especially in this space, you create room in your own life for us to taste and see that you are good. We pray that today you will not only hear us and allow us to be ourselves before you, but that you will enable us to hear you and allow you to be yourself before us. We pray this in Christ and by the Spirit. Amen. First Timothy chapter 2 starting verse 1. First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for everyone, for kings and all who are in high positions, so that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and dignity. Don't worry, I'm not going to talk about politics. That's just where the text starts. This is right and is acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who desires everyone to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God, There is also one mediator between God and humankind, Christ Jesus, himself human, who gave himself a ransom for all. This was attested at the right time. For this I was appointed a herald and an apostle. I'm telling the truth, I am not lying, a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. Reading the church fathers and Christians from the ancient and medieval world I'm always struck by how often they talk about God. And it casts into relief how rarely we do it. I mean, most of the Christianity that I've known has spent much more time talking about what we are to do and what God has done for us than it has spent talking about what God is as God. There's very relatively very little talk about God's nature and being and a whole lot of talk about God's acts, God's benefits, and our responsibilities and privileges in light of those acts and those accomplishments. But what I want to do this morning is suggest that we have to, at the heart of the church's life, is the turning to God as God is. And we're not only talking about what God has done and what God calls us to do, we're just talking about God as God. And that right at the heart of the Christian life is that call to contemplate God. And that that is the only way to change our deepest assumptions about the way the world works, who we are, and what it means to be related to God. Because we don't do it that often, I think most of us still have the the first conceptions we had about God as children. Those, Those things, I think, for most of us never change. When we're very young, basic, deep assumptions about what it means for God to be God and what it means for me to be myself get formed. And no matter how much knowledge I gain explicitly, tacitly, those assumptions stay exactly the same. A lot changes on the surface, but underneath, I still hold those same deep convictions 
about what it means for God to be God and what it means for me to be myself. I, I started to learn this actually from my own children. When, when my daughter was four or five, in the, the heat of the why stage, you remember that? When, you're, when your children are that age where no matter what you're experiencing, they want to know why is this the way it is? And you, probably being a more generous parent than I am, you start to answer them, right? You give an answer. Well, it's this way because of that. And that's immediately followed with, why is it that way then? And you, again, being more generous than I am, say, well, it's because of this. Now, some of you are probably like I am in that you just say, because it is, or ask your mom, right? <laughs> you, you just dismiss it, right? But if, if you keep allowing them to ask the question and attempting to answer, you'll find out what I found out with my children, is that they'll, they'll keep asking. And eventually, you will come up against something you cannot answer. You won't have an answer for it. And with all of my children so far, which is not a prediction about future children, it's just, again, the in-laws are here, I need to qualify that. <laughs> all of them, when you get to that point where as a parent, you can't say anymore, do you know what they say? Oh, God did that. And I realized from, from engaging with my children in that way that actually I think all of us think about God like that. We think about God as whatever it is that makes happen what we can't otherwise explain. And think about how offhandedly we say this. If something happens that we can't explain, we say something like, must have been God. Without realizing that we're betraying, that if there's something we think we can't explain, God didn't have anything to do with that. Right? And we end up sorting all of our lives into two piles. One very small pile, which is stuff God does that we can't explain. And then everything else that we think we can't explain. But what we've done then, essentially, is limit, to limit God to, to some of the action in our lives. To some of what happens in the world. All because of this deep, childlike framing that assumes you appeal to God when you can't give any other answer. In fact, I think... Most of us, again, deep in our imaginations, think of God as a being or set of beings. At least two of which live a long way away from here. And who rarely do anything. They, they, got, they did a lot in the beginning to get it all started. And arguably they're going to do a lot in the end. But mostly they don't do anything except watch us from a distance. Like super celestial intelligence surveillance. And that that's the kind of knowledge God has for us and has of us until the end. And that eventually one of those two that are way off out there are going to come back to us. I was in Mardell once. This will tell you a lot about, about me. I was in Mardell and I saw a book on a shelf called Close Encounters of the God Kind. I won't tell you who wrote it. You may know. And I picked it up and I read the whole book right there standing in Mardell. I'm not sure if that's a sin or not. I might need to confess that, <laughs> reading books without paying for it. But in this book, this evangelist, television evangelist, recounts his, his trip to heaven, not a vision of heaven, that he actually was taken out of his body into heaven. And when he got to heaven, he was kind of dropped in the suburbs outside of the center of the city. I couldn't make this up. If I could make this up, I wouldn't be here. I'd be writing novels and making money. Right? But he, he gets dropped at the edge of heaven in the suburbs. He starts making his way to the center of the city. And on his way, he passes through this area that looks a little bit like Central Park, and there's this man on the bench looking through a bunch of books. And so he asks his angel guide, who's that? And the angel says, that's the Apostle Paul. He's reading his letters. 
which I think is a little bit narcissistic. I mean, I don't know that Paul is in heaven reading his letters now. Like, I think maybe he's gotten beyond that, right? But, but he passes Paul, and he sees this other man coming toward him, and he says to the angel, you know, who is this? And the angel said, that's, that's Father Abraham. And he said, you'll be glad to know Father Abraham is pretty short and kind of barrel-chested, which you may need to know if you get to heaven, you see a really short man. That may be Abraham. You don't know. So he says to the angel, I want to see Jesus. And the, and the angel said, well, you see that crowd over there in the middle of the street. That, that, that's where Jesus is. It's, it, there's a throng around him. And so he heads over to where Jesus is. And eventually Jesus notices the evangelist standing at the edge of the crowd. And they start a conversation. And you'll be glad to know that Jesus is about our size, you know, 5'11 or so, bright blue eyes, <laughs> a good Caucasian male, right? And so Jesus tells him, you know, Jesse, why, why don't you come see the throne room? Because you don't go to heaven and not see the throne room, right? Like, there's just some places you go, you, you go to see the main site. And in heaven, the main site is the throne room. So he leads the evangelist into the throne room. Now, when they get in the throne room, the evangelist can't look at God, the Father. Because God, the Father, is, one, too big. He's basically another male, just gigantic, like 90 times larger than Jesus. And too bright. I guess Jesus is not that bright. He could look at Jesus, but he can't look at the Father. He said that, not me, right? That he can't look at the Father. And he, he said all he could see of the Father were his feet, his ankles, and a little bit of the shin where the robe didn't cover. So good to know God had a robe on. And he said occasionally, he, God's an Italian, he said. God talks with his hands. So he will drive the angels batty because every time God moves his hands, he's so powerful that it throws the angels up against the walls in the throne room, Right? And he said, but occasionally God would get so carried away, the father would get so carried away, that he would see the tips of the father's fingers. He's like, but other than that, other than his you know, ankles and, and tips of his fingers, I didn't see anything because he was too bright. But being a good Christian, the evangelist has one question for God. Does anybody know what it is? Where's the Holy Spirit? So I see Jesus, there he is, looking all white and blonde and blue-eyed, and there's the father looking gigantic, right, like a, straight out of a chick track. And if you've read chick tracks, you know what I mean. Well, where's the Holy Spirit? Does anybody want to guess what the answer was? On earth. That's exactly right. Now, I'm sure this man's heart is good and that he's trying to do the best he can. And let's just assume he's not lying. Let's just assume that he had some kind of experience. But that's not an experience of the Christian God. That man had an experience of two men and a bird, not of God. Like, he believes in two males, disproportionately sized, who live a long way away from us, and a bird who lives with us. But here's the thing. Here's what I love about that book. I think he's just naming what a lot of us believe way, 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 way deep in our imaginations. That actually we do think about God as vaguely masculine and living way off out there somewhere, so that most of our lives is lived in the absence of at least two-thirds of God or two of the three gods, and we, we're stuck with the bird. The men are out there, right? And so we, we want God to send the bird, right? That, you know, send the bird, right? That's, that's the hashtag for the sanctuary revival, send the bird, right? Like, that's, that's what we want. And so we end up, we have terms like omnipotence and omniscience and omnipresence, but what we mean by those terms is something like this. When we say omnipotent, what we really mean is God has the most power to overcome all the resistances. 
That's not what Christians mean, though, when they say God is omnipotent. When we say God is omnipotent, we don't mean he has the most power. We mean he has all the power there is that belongs to God, right? There's God and God's power, and then there's creaturely power. God doesn't have the most power. He has all the power. But because of the way we as children are formed to think about God, we think of God as just the most powerful of many powerful beings. And when we think about omniscience, knowing, all-knowing, we, we think about God again as surveillance, as if he's watching us from a distance, like Bette Midler, right? Like, this is, God is watching us from a distance, right? And cataloging everything that happens. I mean, I can still remember as a kid thinking of the book of life. Oh, by the way, the evangelist saw the book of life, and it's a gigantic black book with book of life in block gold letters across the front of it. His imagination was running low on fuel at that point. But, I mean, I imagine this as a kid, right, that there's a book of life. And every time I sin, angel erases my name, right? With one of those pencils that you have in kindergarten, you know, that like you could sit on your shoulder, they're so big, right? And this angel's like erasing my name, and then, then I repent. He writes my name back in, right? But it's in pencil, right? Because you never know like when it's going to get erased again. And, and we imagine that that's how God knows us, that he keeps, again, like Santa Claus, he keeps a record of things, right? He's just writing it down. But that's not at all what Christians mean when we say God knows us. When we say God knows us, we don't think he knows us from a distance by cataloging us. He knows us from inside of us. He knows us from within our experience more deeply than we are in our own experiences. As Augustine will say, he's nearer to us than we are to ourselves. He doesn't know me from outside observing me. He knows me from within as my creator, as my savior. That's an entirely different kind of knowledge. He doesn't catalog me. He knows me intimately and loves me from that knowledge. And when we say that God is omnipresent, I think most of us, what we, what we think of as omnipresence is really God has the ability to get anywhere pretty quick. But again, he's mostly away from us. But when Christians say God is omnipresent, they mean God is God's own space. God doesn't live within a space like you and I live within a space. God is under none of those constraints. God is God's own space, and he's as near to us right now as he ever has been or ever will be. We're not attuned to it yet. We don't see it yet, except by faith. But he is as present now as he ever will be in the end. The, this is why we should re re refrain from talking about the second coming of Jesus. Because in our context, that sounds like one of those two males, the shorter one, the one that's not so bright, is going to get on a horse and ride it through space, no telling how long that's going to take him. He might have already started, right? And going to ride it all the way down here to us, right? This, again, no one thinks this, but we think this, right? But he's going to ride it all, but that, that's not how presence works. The New Testament doesn't talk about Jesus coming back. It talks about his appearing. That what's going to happen is the veil that separates me from that presence that's already here for me is going to be taken away. And the Jesus in whom I already have my being who's already present to me, as present as he will ever be, will be present in a new way because I will be changed to see it. He's not coming from a distance to me. He's opening me up to what is already real in ways I can't grasp. These are the kinds of things that Christians mean when we talk about God. But I think the problem is we've forgotten over time how to contemplate God. We know how to invoke God. We know how to petition God. We know how to complain to God. But we don't know how to just contemplate God. 
to just look at God, to just think and meditate on the character and the nature of God. Rowan Williams, former Archbishop of Canterbury, puts it like this, to be contemplative as Christ is contemplative is to be open to all the fullness that the Father wishes to pour into our hearts. With our minds made still and ready to receive, with our self-generated fantasies about God and ourselves reduced to silence, we are at last at the point where we may begin to grow. And the face we need to show our world is the face of a humanity in endless growth towards love, a humanity so delighted and engaged by the glory that we look toward that we are prepared to embark on a journey without end to find our way more deeply into it, into the heart of the Trinitarian life. So delighted and engaged at the glory we look toward. That's how transformation happens deeply. And no matter how much we talk about the actions of God and the commands of God and the directives of God and the shape of the Christian life, until we contemplate the character and nature of this God, all of this is just moving furniture on the Titanic. Because you'll never be able to pray and praise with any kind of depth until you know the kind of God you're praying to and with and in. Otherwise, it's, it, you, you have, no matter how developed your explicit thoughts about God are, you have a childish framework for that that's constantly subverting your hope. If our hope is just that there are two males way away from us, then prayer isn't what the New Testament says it is. That when we talk about the presence of God, it's not rich in the way that Scripture witnesses to it. And so we have to have that confronted. We have to have those deep framings broken open and reshaped in ways that are true to what the gospel says about God. So with that in mind, I want to look at Numbers 23. Paul is on his way, before we read the text, let me, let me say this. Paul is in Athens, kind of cultural center of his time. And he's walking through the city and he sees all kinds of idols and altars to idols. And he notices one, he's grieved by this, but he notices one that is an altar to the unknown God. And when he's given space in the Oropagus to speak to the Athenians, he says to them, I see that you worship many gods, but there is this altar to an unknown God. I can tell you who he is. And then he tells them the story of the gospel and the resurrection. And I, I think that text in some ways is, is our situation turned upside down, or our situation is that text turned the other way around. We live in a culture where everybody knows the name of God. Paul was in a culture where nobody knew the name of God. They had many altars, many gods, but they didn't know the name of Israel's God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God embodied in Jesus Christ. They didn't know his name, but they had stumbled around in the dark, Paul said, and bumped into him because he's not far from any of us. And all Paul had to do was say, that God you keep bumping into in the dark, that's Jesus' Father in their spirit. But we live in a place where we know the names of God, but we no longer recognize the character and nature of this God. And it is much harder to convince people who think they know God that they don't really see God in his glory than it is to talk to people who know they don't know God's name about what they know they don't know. Right? It's more important to own that you don't know what you think you know than it is to hold on to what you think you know, which means you'll never be able to be transformed by the vision of God's glory. And so the, the heart of the Christian teaching is to keep turning our attention back to, no, God is like this not like that, over and over again. And that brings us to this story in Numbers. It's the story of the prophet Balaam, who has been hired by the king of Moab, Balak, 
to curse Israel. It's amazing what being paid will motivate you to do. And so Balaam is renowned in the ancient world as the prophet who has the most effectiveness. In fact, Balak, the king of Moab, hires him, and then when he brings, he sends the message, he says, I know you are a prophet, and whomever you bless is blessed, and whomever you curse is cursed. But he gets the best he can get. So the dignitaries come up to Balaam, and they say, listen, the king wants you to come and curse Israel. We'll pay you this much. Balaam's like, all right, let me, let me, all right I think I can do that. Let me just pray real quick. He prays, nope, can't happen. Sorry, can't do it. So they go back to Balak and say, listen, the prophet said he couldn't come. And Balak's like, oh, I know what that means. So he sends the next level of dignitaries with a lot more money because he thinks this is a negotiation. And they come back and they tell him, listen, you know, we're, we're a little more important and we have a lot more money. And Balaam says, all right, let me pray again. Again, it's amazing what getting paid will motivate you to do. So he goes in and he's, he's praying and, and, and this time he gets permission to go. Of course, God didn't want to give him the permission. We can't get into that, but he, he gets it. And he's coming back. That's where the donkey talks to him, and, and he sees the angel of the Lord. He finally gets to the encampment of the Israelites, and Balak takes him up on a hill overlooking the encampment and, and says, all right, curse them. I paid you for this, now curse them. And he tries, Balaam tries, and he can't. And instead, he blesses them. And Balak's like, listen, I paid you to curse these people. Here, let's do this. And he leads him to another place hoping, like, maybe here you'll, you'll be able to work the hex, right? Like, we couldn't do it over there, maybe we will here. And he keeps moving. Every time they, there are four blessings in all. Every time Balaam speaks, he blesses instead of curses. And Balak says, well, let's try it over here. And so, like, you can just see this king, and every time they do it, they offer seven sacrifices. He kills seven bullocks each time. And it doesn't work. And you can see Balak is getting more and more agitated. Finally, we come to this moment where Balaam speaks a word of prophecy to the king. This is what he says, Numbers 23. Then Balaam uttered his oracle, saying, Rise, Balak, and hear. Listen to me, O son of Zippor. God is not a human being that he should lie, or a mortal that he should change his mind. Has he promised, and will he not do it? Has he spoken, and will he not fulfill it? See, I received a command to bless. He has blessed, and I cannot revoke it. Now remember, what was Balaam known for? You're the prophet. Whomever you bless is blessed, and whomever you curse is cursed. But what Balaam finds out and Balak finds out is that when God has spoken a blessing, even the most effective prophet cannot go against it. He cannot go against it. It's not that Balaam is deciding not to curse Israel. He cannot curse Israel. He's, he cannot find a way to curse them because he recognizes the word of God that has created this people is greater than any magical hex I can work up. So I cannot curse them. I cannot curse them. And the key to his realization is what he says to Balak. God is not. Because the real vision of the Christian God starts with the recognition of what God isn't. God is not. And this is exactly what Paul does in Athens. When he's talking to the Athenians about this God that they don't know, what he says is, he's not like us mortals. He doesn't live in houses. He doesn't need us to serve him with our hands. He is immortal. 
and invisible, the only wise God who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one can see and live. He's not like anything else you know. In fact, for Christians as for Jews, there are just two kinds of reality. There's creaturely reality, which is everything from archangels to ants, to amoeba, to germs. Every, every created thing belongs in one category. And then there's another category, and it's God. And that, those are the only two things there are. God, which isn't a thing at all, and then all the things there are. And the way we come to the realization of what God is like is by starting to realize he's none of these things in this category. God is not this, and he's not that. He's not the sunrise. He's not the moon. He's not the rain. He's not a tree. He's not an owl. He's not two men and a bird. All of those are idols. He's God. And so Christian speech about God starts with negation. Whatever you want to say about God, we'll say, well, that's true in some way, but it's not fully true. God is like a rock, but he's not a rock. God is like a bird, but he's not a bird. God is like wind, but he's not wind. He's like fire, but he's not fire. Whatever you want to say about God, we have to immediately affirm and negate, affirm and negate, yes and no, yes and no. Because what we're trying to speak about is unlike anything else we have to speak about. He is infinite, mysterious, the only wise God who is immortal and dwells in unapproachable light, as Paul says. So, really quickly, I want to name a few things that God is not. And this, these are not all the things that God is not, but they're, I think, especially pertinent to us. The first one is this. God is not one of the things that exist in the universe. In that sense, God is not, does not exist. He's the cause, the creator of existence. Here's, here's the difference. Most of us, again, imagine... You're looking at a whiteboard and this gigantic circle and then a bunch of X's inside that circle. And one of those X's represent you and one represents your parents and one represents your friends and your enemies. And then the biggest X represents God. Most of us, again, while we're very young, are taught to imagine reality in this way. That there aren't two kinds of reality, God and everything else. There's just one reality. And God is one of the things, the most powerful, but one of the things in that reality which means that God is just one agent among other agents. He's one being acting in the world, but there are all kinds of other beings. There's the devil, there's your mother-in-law, there's your father-in-law, right? There's your sister and your brother and your children. And all of these things are messed up together in the same reality. But Christians say that's idolatry. God is not an X inside the circle. God is whatever makes it possible that there is an X at all and a circle at all. God doesn't, he's not conditioned by any of these things. Right? God is not a, B, he's not an item. This is why we shouldn't say things like, God is my priority. You can only prioritize things that are of a kind. Right? You can make a list and say, well, this is first and this is second and this is third. But God is not on a list. God is the one who makes it possible for me to have those priorities rightly. So I don't love God first and then my wife and then my children. By loving God, I love my wife and love my children. By loving my, my children and my wife, I love God. There's no competition there. He's not the first item on the list. He's the depth and reality of every item on the list. He's not an X inside the circle. Another thing God is not is he's not sometimes present and sometimes absent. Again, that's what we tend to think. God, most of the time, is way off somewhere and occasionally, if we sing the right song or pray the right prayer or fast the right fast or give the right offering, he'll show up. 
And in tradition I grew up in, we talked all the time about wanting God to show up, right? It was our version of send the bird, right? We wanted God to come and show up. But he doesn't, in that sense, show up. Now, he has different ways of being present. He's going to be present to us in a moment at this table in in a different way than he's present to us now. But he's never absent from us. We are always in the presence of God. As I've already said, even in the end of all things, he's not more present. We're just more aware of that presence. We are known as we will know as we are known then, but we're not going to know a God who's now absent and then will be present. And he's also not sometimes active and sometimes passive. I mean, if we were honest, I think most of us think God doesn't do very much most of the time. Right? Again, he started, he had a lot to do in those first six days, but then he needed to rest. And since then, it's hard to get him off the couch. Right? You can hardly get him to do anything. But occasionally he will, right? But no, no, no. Christians don't, like, God is always acting. As Thomas Aquinas, one of our great theologians, says, God is pure act. God is always being fully God all the time. It's not like God is, has all the potential to be good and then sometimes activates, activates it. God is always being God to everyone everywhere. But he, we have to be attuned to that action. We don't need God to do more. We need to be more aware of what God is doing. We don't need to ask God to act in new ways. We need to ask God to open our eyes and open our ears so that we become sensitive to what God is always doing. In the language of Scripture, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He doesn't do some activity in one time and not do that activity in another time. He's always being himself for us. The question is, can we see it? Are we open to it? God is not obligated or constrained. Again, he's not within the circle operating under certain rules that keep him from doing what he wants to do. God is free. God is free from rivalry. God is free from the competition that comes with having rivals. God has all the power there is. He doesn't create by overcoming resistance. He just creates. He doesn't have to overcome resistance. There is no resistance for God. He's not constrained. He's not obligated. There's no way to obligate God. This is the the heart of of idolatry, the lie at the heart of idolatry is that you can find a way to obligate God to bless you. You can find a way. You can do something that will manipulate God, but God's not manipulable. God is God, and there is nothing you can say or do that's going to obligate God to be good to you. He's good to you, not because he's obligated to be, but because he's God, and he is good. That's the heart of it. God is neither controlling nor controllable. He's neither controlling nor controllable because control is, again, about the X's inside the circle. We have to control things. When I can't get my three-year-old to do what he needs to do, I have to lay hands on him, right, in a holy way and, and lead him to what he needs to do, right, and away from what he needs to not do. That's control, but God doesn't control in that way because like in, the, in this example of my child, It's me getting my will by him not getting his will. Believe me, that's what he needs. And everyone needs me to do that, right? But if if he gets his way, I'm not getting mine. And if I get my way, he's not getting his, as he will quickly remind you, and in a loud tone, right? He's not getting his way. But that's not how God works with us. When God gets his way with me, it's what I want for myself. Sin is the attempt to to trust my own sense of myself 
and to neglect what God wants for me. Sin is I insist on my way when what I'm insisting on isn't good for me. This is why sin ends in death and not life. Right? God, if God could have his way perfectly with me, when God was done, I would say that's exactly what I wanted. That was my will all along. It just took me a long time to realize it. Because God is not controlling. He's creative. And then God is not useful. This, again, brings us closer to the root of the matter. God is not useful. I think many of us have been persuaded the reason we're Christians is that God has the resources to help us make the life we want for ourselves. That you should be a Christian because God has all of these blessings that he will give you if you become a Christian so that you can then have a really rich and meaningful life. But that's not the kind of use that God gives us. God is not useful in that way. We were talking last night over dinner about Hebrews chapter 11 and how by faith some conquered kingdoms and raised the dead to life again. And others were sawn in two. Now how useful is a God who might get you resurrection from the dead or might get you sawn in two? Seriously. Like, that's a, that, I mean, that's a wide range of possibility, right? I might conquer kingdoms or I might be burned alive at the stake. Why would we follow a God who could lead us to that end? Why would we follow a God who, when he comes among us in the flesh, does end in that way? Jesus doesn't live his best life now. Jesus bears the burden of the guilt and sin of the world and dies on a cross forsaken by everyone. Because God's not useful. He's good. He's faithful. But he's not useful. You can't manipulate this God to give you what you think you want. Because again, that's the heart of sin. He's going to give you what you need. No matter how much you kick and scream about it, he's going to give you what you need. The name of grace is, I'm going to give you what you need, no matter what you keep asking for. And then finally, God is not needy. God is not needy. I think somewhere deep in all of us is the assumption that the reason there is something rather than nothing is that God in eternity made a mistake. He created angels without free will. And then once they were there, he realized, you know, this is not all that great. It's like he started with a Stepford wife instead of starting with a real wife. And then realized, you know what, this is, they don't choose me. I mean, I've got the, my son and I've got that bird, but they don't have a choice, right? And I got all these angels and they don't have a choice. So I'm going to make human beings and I'm going to make them free. So that when they choose me, I'll know they mean it. Now, again, I know what it says this, but we think it at some deep, deep, in some deep recess. But do you know when you think of God in that way, there are only one of two things I think that are ultimately possible. One is your whole life becomes about trying to perform in such a way that God knows you mean it. And you're trying to mean it more and mean it more. This is what happens to Luther. I'm trying to mean it enough that it counts. God, I want you to know I mean it. And all of a sudden, it becomes about gritting your teeth and clenching your fists and, and wrenching up every possible ounce of earnestness you have to make sure it counts. And we've all seen Christianity as that kind of performance, where we're trying to make sure God knows we love God, we love God more than anything, we want to be with God. And the other way, and this is in some ways, I think, more prevalent, is we come to think, if I know what God needs and I know, to meet that, know how to meet that need, then God is at my mercy. That 
If God needs my worship, well, then I'll worship. And by worshiping, I'll get on the inside. And then when I need something, when my kid is sick, I'll pray and God will heal my kid because I've been worshiping. I know what God needs. I scratch his back. He scratches mine. And again, no one says this, but I think at some deep place in our hearts, we think it, which is why when things go wrong, we hear ourselves saying things like, but God, I've been paying my tithes for 20 years. I haven't missed a Sunday except when Dr. Green comes in, and I skipped that one, right? <laughs> I, I, I read my Bible every day. You know what we're saying? God, I met your needs. I scratched your back. Now it's, it's my back that needs scratching. God is not needy. God did not create because he needed somebody to love him. God is love. God didn't create out of any need at all. God created out of sheer goodness and gratuity. God was having such a good time. He said, we ought to create some things so they could enjoy this too. That's the only reason there is anything at all. You exist because God wants you to know the joy of life in him. He doesn't need your obedience. He doesn't need your worship. He doesn't need your love. But you need his attention. You need his word of affirmation. You need his nearness. And he wants you to have it because it's good for you. And when you realize that, you're free. I'm going to end with this. You can all stand if you will. My son, Clive, who's eight, uh, over the last few months I've kind of picked up sketching again. I'm not very good at it, but it's fun, and it's a good kind of therapeutic exercise. And my son was seeing me do this, and he started sketching. And I didn't know what he was drawing. And I looked over, and I saw he had drawn this picture. If Casey can put that up. It's a picture of God. At the top it says, God. And then what do you see? Jesus, hanging between two thieves. And this is the place where we start to learn what God is not. Think about this. I love that my son somehow recognizes that if I'm going to start thinking about God, I have to start right here. This maimed body hanging on that cross between those two thieves because this is God's ultimate. I'm not what you think I am. I'm better than that. A needy God couldn't hang there like that. A useful God wouldn't hang there like that. A God who was constrained wouldn't hang there like that. But our God can say, do whatever you have to do to me. And when you're done, I'll bring life out of death and joy out of sorrow and light out of darkness because there's nothing we can do against God. We're all like Balaam. What he has blessed, we cannot curse. And there's nothing you can do, there's nothing I can do to derail the purposes of this God. He is not a man that he should lie. And this is the God who makes promises and keeps them. God would rather not be God and be God without us. And so he has, in Jesus Christ, conquered everything that could keep his promises from coming true. And from the other side of death, he says to us, do not be afraid. I am God, and you are mine. Amen. Amen. Thanks for listening to this message from Sanctuary Church. If you're in the Tulsa area, we invite you to attend one of our weekend services on Sundays at 8.30 a.m., 10 a.m., or 11.30 a.m. If you would like more information about who we are and what we're about, or to partner financially with what God is doing through Sanctuary, you can go to our website at SanctuaryTulsa.com. 
You can also download our mobile app from the App Store and Google Play. We hope you'll join us next week. Grace and peace.